Managing hair loss without losing your own. Oh crap, Brian. That is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. <laughs> you are such a joker. All right. So one of the first things I think we have to, I anticipate when I walk into a room, is just the sign of emotional reaction of, I think, many of our patients, male and female, to losing their hair. So it's this aspect of feeling like they look older than they are, older than they feel mentally or physically on the inside there's sometimes a sense of helplessness. And I think this comes out with a lot of skin conditions that when maybe you lack control in other parts of your life or other parts of your health, you are gonna control your hair or your skin and what is visible to others because other things are outside of your control. And this idea of just feeling less attractive. For a lot of people, I'll walk into the room, I have this bushy mop of hair and they're like, oh, your hair is so beautiful. And I'm like, Let, this is not about me. Let's talk about you. Um, but I think people's hair is really a big part of what they root their attractiveness in. And when they start to see that hair coming out, they think that now this, this appeal to them, their beauty, their sense of identity is really diminished. So I think we have to just anticipate this. And I want to show you a few pictures. And I want to see if you maybe agree that there's something that is different between these pictures. Sometimes it's not subtle like the first picture. Maybe it's a little more subtle in some of these. But is there something to being perceived in just a different way? And even again in that very visceral, um, you can't name it, but yes, I react differently to this woman based on these pictures. So attractiveness is still a very big part of our society. And you could say, well, this is just how this person feels. I'm sure it doesn't really change anything about how their life is or what their life is uh, you know, happening to them from other people. But I was really surprised to look at the research and find that when it comes to attractiveness, and yes, alopecia is only one part of attractiveness, attractiveness if you are more attractive, you are more likely to be seen as, I had a good date with you. If you have a good date with somebody, it might mean that you get a second date, that you are more successful at finding a partner and getting married if that's for you. You're also more likely to have uh, upward mobility economically. You're more likely to be promoted, to be moved into a new position. That's a real thing that influences people's lives. You're more likely to be hired in the first place, and if you ever get arrested, you are more likely to have a lower bail and be found innocent, so keep that in mind. So when these patients come in to see us and they're having this kind of emotional reaction, I think the best advice one of my senior faculty gave me when I was starting is the patient's problems are the patient's problems. Because I think that we are all in this job because we're very empathetic and we really connect with that emotion, but it can be draining. I don't know if that happens to you, but sometimes at the end of the day, I'm like, oh, like don't talk to me, don't look at me. Um, but I think I, by having a framework that I'm gonna hopefully show you in just a second and maybe we'll connect with you, I feel like I can acknowledge their emotions with some of these responses and then express hope give them a chance. I would really love, I hear you. So I hear you, I hear that hair loss can be really stressful. Um, your feelings are a very common part of how other people with alopecia feel. So normalizing their reaction. Um, it gives no one comfort to know that their alopecia is less bad as someone else. It gives them no comfort to know that alopecia is a common problem. What they want to know is that you're going to work with them to find a management plan. That is the hope that I try and give people. Um, when people are kind of perseverating about the emotional aspect of this, I tend to redirect them and say, I, I hear you talking about how stressful this is. And you know, stress can sometimes really worsen hair loss. So I wonder what thoughts you have about ways to deal with that stress. Is there somebody you talk to, things that you can do? Because I don't wanna say out loud, I think you need a psychiatrist, 
especially at a first visit. Um, but I think at some point, I'm trying to help them find the idea for themselves about what they can do to handle that stress. And if I find they're not being successful, then sometimes I will su suggest a counselor, a pastor, somebody who they feel comfortable uh, going to, even if it is a psychologist or psychiatrist. So after listening, I think the next goal is to look. So what are we looking for? Um, one thing that we're looking for is pulling first up in our minds the structure for what hair loss is caused by. So we're looking at if this is diffuse or if it's generalized, if it's something to do with the scalp, the skin, or whether it's a breakage of the hair. So having a framework has really helped me to walk into these rooms and feel like I can handle anything that's behind the door. So if people are complaining of alopecia or no alopecia, the first thing I want to do is ask them what they're noticing. So are you, are you noticing that hair is falling out all over? Are you noticing it more localized? If hair is falling out all over, that can be due to breakage of the hair, not just telogen effluvium or androgenetic alopecia. And people can have multiple reasons for alopecia at the same time. So just because you might inspect the hair and find some breakage does not mean there might be a second process going on. So I suggest uh, sort of being open to looking for everything. Inspect the hair shafts, but then also closely look at the scalp. Because when we're looking at the scalp, we're looking for a skin-mediated problem, signs of inflammation, patches of hair loss, changes in the hair caliber, which is due to something that's going on in the skin. So problems in the skin, I sort of, again, after I've looked for damage to the hair shaft, I think about what am I seeing? Am I seeing patches of hair loss? Is this regional hair loss? Or is this diffuse where I can't find just one bald patch, but there's an air, the entire scalp sort of looks similar? So this is an example of somebody who might come in saying that they have hair loss. You can see some of the discrepancy in the length of her hair. And this is one of the things that tells me I need to look a little more closely actually at the quality of the hair shaft itself. And you can see this breakage from heat and chemicals that is causing a fragility of the hair where she perceives that she is uh, shedding it from the crown, from the skin, but really it's from breaking. So thinking about patchy and regional, I'll show you a slide with diffuse in a second. I put on here some of the most common things that would cause patchy hair loss. What I didn't put on here was trichotillosis. It came up pretty frequently uh, in the pediatric talks. It's a lot less common, and I'm typically treating a lot of adults for hair loss. But trichotillosis is a little more common than the pediatric population. But yes, it can be a cause of patchy and regional alopecia. I've put pluses and minuses next to things that are typically non-scarring, but can be scarring. And I put an asterisk next to things that are scarring. Uh, traction, that should be a plus minus. Um, early in traction alopecia, this is a non-scarring process, but it can become scarring uh, with continued uh, traction on that hair. So uh, keeping that in mind. So this is now diffuse forms of hair loss. So again, a mixture of non-scarring and scarring processes. So when I'm looking, one of the tools that I've started to use a lot more is dermoscopy. So I first am looking at the scalp, but then I'm pretty quick to pull out my dermatoscope. I'm often putting it down onto the skin, so contact dermoscopy. And I'm gonna show you some pictures of first what to expect when you're looking at a normal scalp, and then I'll show you some pictures of abnormal scalps. So this is normal. In a normal scalp, you don't see a lot of pinkness or telangiectasias in the background of the skin. So the skin between the follicles, very little uh, color, no telangiectasias. You're not seeing skin or scale built up in a collar around these follicles. And typically on a scalp, you'll see a cluster of two or three hairs coming out pretty closely together. So this is absolutely normal. And that's important because in some forms of alopecia, seeing a singlet ostea, a singlet hair coming out of an opening is a sign of scarring alopecia. And I'll show you a picture of that in just a second. The other thing I feel like I picture in my mind is if I you know, had my fingers on this image, I could put my fingers down and sort of rotate them, and I could keep getting from one hair cluster to another. So sort of very similar differences if I go from here to here, and then I could reach from here to here, and here to here, and here to here. So it was sort of an even distribution without real big gaps or spaces uh, between the clusters of hairs. 
Um, this is just another example showing the very normal clustering of hairs coming out all together on the scalp. The other thing that you can notice when you look at a normal scalp is that the width of these hairs is all pretty similar. And so that's really reassuring uh, to tell you that something like uh, androgenetic alopecia is not happening. This is normal too. So these are called dirty dots. So this is not pigment, this is just foreign matter. Um, it's a lot more common in kids. So if you tell somebody to go home and just shampoo, those dirty dots go away. So I just want you to know that that's not seborrhea, it's not scale, it's um, just dirt. What's also normal are these little white dots. So we don't want to aggressively uh, you know, over-diagnose scarring because we see these white dots. You're going to see these because somebody has a darker skin color. These are not openings for hair follicles. These are the openings for the eccrine coils. So you can see here some follicles coming out and how this white dot is really not next, it's not with the hair, it is next to the hair. Um, so this can be just a little bit challenging when we're seeing somebody who has complete alopecia. We, and to tell the difference between the ostea, which are these little donuts, and then the little white interfollicular dots. The interfollicular dots are just a little bit smaller and you don't get the sense that there's a, a little opening or a donut like I sometimes see. And I'll show you some more pictures of what just a, an ostea without a hair looks like. So this is a patient with localized hair loss. This is Haley, she's a pediatric patient. And so in kids, one of the first differential diagnoses we're thinking of, is this alopecia areata or is this tinea capitis? And that's where the dermatoscope can also help us because you know sometimes kids, they're not uh, in the mood for you to try and collect a culture. You're worried about whether you got enough material or not. And so the dermatoscope can help you know, reassure you depending on what the test result that you get back. So alopecia areata is on the left side of the picture here. What we're seeing are these little bent hairs because the hair follicle is now getting thinned. So the exclamation point, these are some exclamation points. Here you can see it's wider at the top, getting thinner as you go down. This one's a really good example of that. Sometimes because of this weakening, the hair gets a little bit bent. Um, some of the hairs are also broken. You can see some of these thinner hairs over here. With tinea capitis, the fungus in either grows along the outside of the hair shaft, weakening it, or grows on the inside of the hair shaft and weakens it. And you tend to see these very crisp breaks without the tapering, so you're not seeing exclamation point hairs. And you also get these comma-shaped hairs. So it looks like the comma um, on our laptops, or sometimes people say these look like hockey sticks. So depending on what you see, it's sort of that comma shape. So I want to try and include some of the diversity that we see in our patients here. So with alopecia areata, you're gonna see very similar findings in somebody with skin of color, but in uh, tinea capitis, a straight hair becomes curved. In people with skin of color, their natural hair shaft is already more curved, and so when it becomes more curved in tinea capitis, you get this corkscrew shape. So in tinea capitis, instead of just a sort of hockey stick, you get this spiral that you can see on the surface of the skin. So these are both tinea capitis, just in different groups of patients. So one of the most important things that I'm trying to do with my dermatoscope is figure out if I am worried about scarring, because scarring alopecias are in a different bucket. Scarring alopecia to me is an immune process and it's an emergency most of the time. This is something I need to get under control sooner rather than later, so that way we're not replacing more hair follicles with scar. I tell my patients, scar is like a brick wall to hair follicles. We can't get hair to regrow through a scar. And so being able to identify scars really Really important for uh, patients and for us. So on the left-hand side, there are no ostea. This is a smooth field of skin. On the right-hand side, you can see these tiny little yellow tan donuts. So these are the ostea, the openings of the hair follicles that are just completely devoid of hair. This is what alopecia areata might look like in a patient. This is another, again, picture of a patient with skin of color. This is normal. 
You can see a slight pallor just around the hair follicles. A little bit is normal, a lot is not, and I'll show you some pictures of that. But again, the spacing between these hairs, you can feel a, a similar distance from here to here, from here to here, here to here, here to here. So everything is kind of equivalently spaced. Whereas when we go into this picture, this is a singlet hair. That is not good. In this patient, bunches of hairs, that's what we expect. Singlet hairs, singlet hairs. And when we go from here to here, this is now a bigger reach. This is a big reach. This is even bigger. So this is a sign that there are now spaces in the skin where there used to be hair follicles that no longer have follicles. And when I look in this space to see if maybe there's just an empty ostea, there's not that little yellow or tan donut. This ostea has been completely obliterated by a scarring process. So this is just meant to be a reference. This is the same picture, scarring versus non-scarring. So in this picture here, this is scarring alopecia. This is scarring alopecia because we have singlet hairs. We have a complete smooth background, absolutely no ostea in this area. And like in plano pilaris and frontal fibrosing alopecia will very often have this peripilar, meaning perifollicular scale that builds up right around the base of the scalp and kind of goes up onto the hair itself. So the SOS sign, singlet ostea sign, and really is an urgency, again, a sign of a scarring alopecia. This is a patient with frontal fibrosing alopecia. It's sort of a subtype of lichen plano pilaris, another scarring hair loss. It's more common in postmenopausal women, can happen in men. I'm showing you a picture of a Caucasian woman, but it's really important to recognize it happens in black women as well, and it's often misdiagnosed as traction alopecia because it's at the front of the scalp. Women with uh, lichen plano pilaris very often have alopecia of the eyebrows as well, and they might get these little skin-colored bumps. They almost look like milia or sebaceous hyperplasia when you first look at them quickly, but it's also inflammatory uh, um, a response around the hair follicles on the face. We just get different findings when it's down onto the temples. So. That's a regional hair loss. I showed you Haley, who has the more localized hair loss. How do we use our dermatoscope on now diffuse hair losses? So this is androgenetic alopecia and telogen effluvium. This is telogen effluvium. So what you're not seeing, again, is any inflammation of the skin. You're not seeing that peripilar scale. And when we go with our fingers to go from um, sort of group of hairs to group of hairs, it's really not all that different in terms of the spacing. When we look at the hair shafts themselves, they all look pretty homogenous. The width of those hairs is all very consistent. But compare that to these hairs. So again, there might be a little bit of a reach, but we're not seeing any scarring. But these hairs are starting to get kind of thin and wispy. And this is a sign of androgenetic alopecia. We're going to see those hairs more likely on the vertex scalp of a woman, and uh, you can see these in men, but I feel like the challenge of, of diagnosing androgenetic versus telogen effluvium in women is that we don't get that patterned hair loss. We're looking for every clue we can get because you don't get the receding hairline. And so anisocytosis is a word you may have heard way back when you were in school because it's a condition that happens with red blood cells when you get a, a variation in the size. Um, it can be related to a lot of different things, but that, that prefix, aniso, means uneven. And that's what we're seeing in androgenetic alopecia. It can really help reinforce that that's the diagnosis for this patient. And so I think that this has helped me so much to feel much more confident when I just can take out my dermatoscope and I can tell somebody, I'm going to look at your scalp really closely. They love it. And then if I feel pretty confident, I can say, you know what, I don't think we need to do a biopsy at this point. I'd like to suggest some treatments for you. If they are not working, I can always reevaluate with my dermatoscope or do a biopsy. So this is traction alopecia. This can be a scarring alopecia if it is not caught early enough. Uh, this uh, young woman probably does have very advanced traction alopecia. This is traction alopecia because of the fringe sign. So it's sort of like a parting of the waters. You've got some hair over here that's preserved, and then you have this recession, 
and then the hair picks up again. You can even get a sense that there's some inflammation right at this leading edge because of just the skin reacting to that constant tension on the hair shafts. Biopsies are a big part of managing alopecia, both because we don't have 100% accuracy or people do have multiple forms of hair loss at the same time. My suggestions for doing biopsies, three hints that I think really help me. One, don't biopsy the scar. Your pathologist is just going to confirm for you that it's a scar, but you're not going to get any information about the process that caused it. Do not biopsy the newest spot. That process has not fully formed. You're not going to get as well characterized and infiltrate, and your pathologist is going to give you a blah, blah, could be this, could be that, and 17 other things. So what you want to do is take a punch biopsy of a chronic area sort of at the leading edge of where scar is forming. Um, so this would be a perfect place. This would be another pretty perfect place. There's maybe a tiny little bit of inflammation. That would be a good area to go in. When you do a biopsy, do it with help. I have learned the hard way. And I just had a colleague last week who did a scalp biopsy with help, hit an artery, it splashed across the room. So with the scalp, there is so much blood, so much in the scalp that you need someone to help you with that biopsy. Um, I don't always do a biopsy, you know, from the neck down with assistance because I'm, you know, doing one thing and they're helping me with another in another room. On the scalp, I always slow down and get help. I put the lidocaine in, I let the epi sit, I go in another room, I see another patient, even with letting it sit for five, 10, 15 minutes. As soon as you put that punch in, blood is already welling out as you're trying to get your forcep, get that piece right down at the fat. What your assistant is doing is putting pressure down around that cut site so you can see what you're doing. Have lots of gauze, because again, the worst thing I think our patients can feel is something running down their scalp. Their heart rate goes up, their blood pressure goes up, more blood is running. So always have help, always have a lot of gauze. Always, I think, let the lidocaine sit, especially uh, with epi. The other thing you want to do when you fill out your requisition is tell the pathologist this is an alopecia process. Because what you can see here is normally they just cut through the process vertically. With alopecia, we want them to cut through the process horizontally so we can see what's going on in that hair follicle. So a lot of places have an alopecia protocol. So on the requisition, just put alopecia, alopecia protocol, please, please evaluate for alopecia. So getting into the nitty-gritty, we've talked about how to enter a room, how to get them on your side, how to get, you know, kind of some of the emotion managed, how to evaluate the patient, maybe just clinically having a thought process, using dermoscopy, doing a biopsy. Now we're looking at how to manage these patients. And in order to, I think, incorporate the patient, have them feel kind of confident in the plan, I generally ask them, Tell me about what you're doing now. Tell me about how you take care of your hair, because if there is an aspect of breakage, very often it's going to come out in the history of thermal processing, of how do you take care of your hair? Do you use a hair dryer? Do you use a straightener? You know, how old are those products? Because sometimes the heat regulation on these products goes kaput. They still work, but you're actually getting much higher temperatures on that hair. Um, so talking to them about how thermal styling can maybe contribute to the worsening of another process. If somebody has telogen effluvium and they're doing everything they can to make it, you know, look more in volume, that can also contribute to breakage and more of a problem. A lot of patients wonder, well, what am I, what should I be doing that I'm not right now? And usually it's a question of vitamins. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about hair and vitamins tomorrow during the complementary and alternative medicine. The short answer is there isn't a vitamin that's going to regrow hair. If somebody's really interested in taking a vitamin, that is fine. Just know that there are a lot of boutique products out there that are looking to make money off your patient. I found hair and nail vitamins that cost 50 bucks. That is just absurd. Um, my blood pressure is going up. Um, so I think just reassuring them, if they want to do it, it's fine, just not to spend a ton of money on it. And the other thing that helps me is to have a tackle box. So related to each type of alopecia, having my go-to treatments, and I'm going to talk about some old standbys as well as some new research here. 
So this is my tackle box. Not that all of these apply to all types of hair loss, but I love topical steroids, especially for any scarring hair loss. I am rubbing steroids on it, assuming that it's not tinea capitis. Um, so I would not rub steroids on that. Any form of hair loss, I, I sort of made a broad statement and now I'm retracting it. Um, care and uh, Hair care and camouflage, I think, go into the care of any type of hair loss. So camouflage is huge. Those pictures I showed you at the beginning, that was with the use of a spray-on camouflage that just matched the person's hair. And the difference between those pictures, I think, is just so drastic, at least when I look at them. So camouflage can go a long way. People don't always want to hear, oh, just cover it up, you'll look amazing. But I say, you know what, while we're working to manage this hair loss, this may help you feel a bit more confident in how you look. Um, minoxidil, that can be used for many types of hair loss. Again, it's not selective. It's not only going to treat androgenetic alopecia. It can help thicken and improve the appearance of alopecia areata, of lichen plano pilaris. This can be used by a broad variety of people, though it is, of course, our first go-to for androgenetic alopecia. Another go-to for me is spironolactone and finasteride. I use these uh, especially in women, finasteride in men. We're gonna talk about low-level light uh, therapy, low-level laser light. Um, so this is red light. Um, hydroxychloroquine and oral retinoids, there's some research uh, for these in lichen plano pilaris and frontal fibrosing alopecia, so I'll, I'll show you some of that. And then, of course, trials. And this is really a big, hot opportunity for our patients with alopecia areata, especially the more advanced forms. So if you have a patient who comes in with alopecia totalis, alopecia universalis, the first thing I would do is go to clinicaltrials.gov and see if there's a trial in your area. So I would find that a lot of patients, and even me, I have trouble keeping track of what they really looked like the last time they were there and whether they look better. So pictures are really important because if you look at this woman, you might say, boy, you know, I'm really not too impressed with what your regimen's doing. Look at all that area of skin I can still see. But having pictures and being able to track this, both for us and on our patients, can really reassure that what we're doing is working. So let's stick with it from picture two to picture three. And all patients, I think, benefit from this, no matter what type of hair loss they have. This patient, she changed her hair color, but overall the density of her hair is improving from time to time to time. So male and female hair loss, approaches to treatment. So what's important to recognize is 50% of us will have androgenetic alopecia by the age of 50. This is incredibly common. So again, I think that helps me when I'm looking at a patient to remember what age they are. Um, and then when I'm, I'm inspecting, I'm again, I'm again thinking about that anisotrichosis, the variation in hair caliber, because I'm already kind of suspicious that maybe it's androgenetic alopecia. So I went into Google and I looked at top 10 advances for androgenetic uh, alopecia or baldness, and this is what I got. Uh, of the top 10, the first three were all about minoxidil. So this is still something that's going to come up uh, with patients when they're looking uh, for solutions. Uh, unscented Rogaine foam, woo! Um, uh, women's Rogaine, again, I actually recommend that women get 5%. I don't care if they put men or women on the box. I want you to turn it around and see 5% because that's what I want you to get. A lot of patients uh, were talking to them about this being the new normal. Like, this is your hair vitamin. It's a treatment. Uh, if you stop, things are going to slowly go back to what they were before. It's not that all the hair suddenly just falls out. But being able to get this at a cost that is affordable over the long term is important. Brand name is not necessarily better. Foam is less irritating, so I do recommend it. So this is Kirkland, that's the Costco generic brand. You can order this from them. Six cans was a lot cheaper than uh, getting the Rogaine brand. And then one of the things that they recommended was this supplemental laser. I'm gonna show you some data in a second that actually adding laser and minoxidil together didn't result in any better option. So actually having some of this research can really help us counsel our patients. 
And what's the best evidence? So what do we know about minoxidil? It's been out for a long time. This is a systematic review. So really what I want you to notice is just what's in the box at the bottom here. So the results favor minoxidil. What is the average increase in hair count when you look in a square centimeter? This is a very standard outcome for clinical trials. And I've tried to find those over all the subsequent treatments when it's available. So minoxidil can regrow about 15 hairs per square centimeter. So it actually does work. Rogaine works when you use it regularly. Most people have to use it for about six months in order to see the benefit. It will cause an initial telogen effluvium, meaning it seems to push out the hairs that were going to be shed anyway. So somebody who's come in already anxious about hair loss, if we don't warn them about that, you will get calls a lot of calls. So just set people's expectations from the start. You might notice more shedding and it's gonna take six months. So let's take a picture now so that way we don't give up on a treatment that actually was working. So low level laser light. This is what I see in the Sky Mall magazine whenever I'm flying. It's those, I don't, I can't even imagine sitting at home on my couch and looking so excited about wearing this red flashlight on my head. But they do sell, it seems like they do. Um, at the very beginning, these were very small studies. Um, as time went along, there were more and more randomized controlled trials, but they were mostly in men. So it wasn't really until 2014 that we had a randomized controlled trial evaluating the use of this low-level laser light in women. Um, this study had a, still a number of men, and there seems to be this consistency of about 17 to 20 hairs, but we haven't had a nice meta-analysis. And this is what I mentioned earlier. This is is that combination of minoxidil, and again, the good strength, 5%, with the low-level laser light, and the combina combination didn't show a better difference or a, an improvement over either one alone. So what can low-level laser light do for our patients? Again, down here, this favors the low-level laser. Again, you get an increase of approximately 17 to 18 hairs. So since I love a deal, I went to see how little I could spend to get a pretty reasonable product. And so at QVC, I could get one for $250. This gets talked about a lot. So platelet-rich plasma. Platelet-rich plasma really uh, got talking about for uh, alopecia in 2006, and it was in relation to uh, doing hair transplants. They were putting the little grafts into the patient's own plasma to see if it would help rejuvenate them and protect them during the trauma of taking them out, kind of cut them, cutting them up into individual pieces and then putting them back into the scalp. The patient's own blood is taken, it's centrifuged down, and then it's re-injected that um, buffy coat or the top yellow part back into the scalp. The rationale is that the serum has a lot of growth factors um, and maybe there's something about perturbing these platelets that helps to reinvigorate the scalp to protect the hair, regrow the hair, and make it better. What's the evidence? So it's hard to study platelet-rich plasma because the number of times that you centrifuge, how you process that uh, liquid that you take off, how you do the injections, all of this seems to contribute to some variation in the outcomes. On the left-hand side, this is the image from the 2016 study that's uh, mentioned on the slide. So this is a split head, placebo-controlled. So this man had platelet-rich plasma on one side of his scalp. So this is baseline. This is afterwards. And I looked at this, I was like, you know what? I mean, his whole scalp looks better. Are they having him rub minoxidil on at the same time and just not telling me? So I looked at the paper, reportedly these patients are not using anything else. So, you know, I was like, well, what do I do? I don't know that I should recommend this because I'm not sure what to believe in these results. But the more I think about it, I think it's very hard to get platelet-rich plasma to just stay on one side of the scalp. So probably some of what's happening is leaching over into the other side. More recently, there have been some randomized controlled trials only in men with uh, alopecia, androgenetic alopecia. They're trying to do a better job of really reporting the rigor of their methods. Uh, these patients had four treatments. Uh, they were spaced 15 days apart. Again, they cataloged the concentrations of growth factors. And these are the results from that study. The pictures close up, I think, are very hard to um, categorize in terms of how many hairs are there. But this is what a computer does, is it counts how many hairs are here 
here versus here. And what it documented were that there was an increase of about 20 to 25 hairs in that square centimeter. So if you remember that minoxidil improves hair count by about 15, that the low-level laser light improves his hair by about 17 to 18, this is slightly better. But what's the cost? Oops, I'm pressing the wrong button. $400 to $1,500 per treatment. And this is somebody who had four treatments. So this is perhaps $6,000 in order to get this improvement, and it's not permanent. So this can be a very expensive option. So for alopecia areata, what are our options for treatment here? So topical steroids. Go big or go home. I use topical clobetasol. I'm not going to fool around with anything less. That's true of most alopecias. Um, thinning of the scalp is relatively rare. It doesn't happen very often unless somebody has lost a follow-up and they've somehow have five years of clobetasol and didn't realize that they should stop it. Um, intralesional steroids are uh, really effective for patients with alopecia areata. We can double up. Again, minoxidil can be combined with everything else. Anthralin is a really old medicine. It tends to be very irritating and can stain, so it's not something we go to very often. But I have a few patients who just with extensive alopecia or they want to do everything they can short of systemics, they really like this as an option. But um, immunotherapy is something we use, I'd say, a lot more. So squaric acid, uh, we will sensitize people to and then rub it on their scalps. We have a few patients who had pretty extensive alopecia totalis and now have regrown their hair and can use ascoric acid maybe once a week, once every two weeks, and really maintain their head of hair. So this is, I think, a really great uh, uh, option to have for your patients. But there's more and more talk about these Janus kinase inhibitors or JAK inhibitors. There's three of them that are being studied for alopecia areata. The challenge is getting cosmetic improvement. So we can measure salt scores, which is how extensive alopecia is on the scalp. And we can be so impressed with the results that we get. 82% of people with alopecia areata um, received or got a salt 75, so they had a 75% uh, reduction. People with more extensive hair loss, the alopecia totalis and alopecia universalis, you know, they got a 75% reduction. But 75% reduction is not always cosmetically acceptable to people. And this is where, with alopecia, we're really pushing for as much improvement as we can because having these odd geometric patches of hair, even if it's 75% better, still leaves you with an odd geometric area of hair that's very visible to people and completely hairless. So that's where a challenge of having a spray cosmetic, unless you can really cover it with hair and with the spray camouflage, can still be really difficult for these patients. Lots of other biologics had jumped on the alopecia areata train. So if we're thinking creatively and we're thinking, gosh, well, my patient's also got psoriasis. Maybe one of these drugs can help. Not impressive. So I wouldn't go after those drugs at this point. But this was a really interesting study and I think informed some of my practice for intralesional steroids. So a lot of times the residents will come up and they'll say, well, gosh, you know, I didn't really get a great improvement with intralesional catalog 5. Maybe we should go up to 10. Well, yeah, sometimes for some things we do get more benefit from a higher concentration. This was a study looking at placebo, 2.5 milligrams per ml, 5 milligrams per ml, and 10. And what you can see are the purple line is placebo, and it's way down away from those other three lines. The top three lines are just really close together. And so there isn't a, a lot that's distinguishing those three different concentrations, though you really risk a lot more indentation and atrophy from higher concentrations of steroids. And so I think one of the best images I've seen is from this study. So this is that quadrant on a patient's head, they used to have alopecia over this whole area, which is why the box was inked down on there. This is the area where they had the normal saline. This is the placebo. This is 2.5, 5, and 10. So really equivalent result, but with less risk of side effect. So I tend to go for 2.5 on the scalp, and I use it for eyebrows. I almost never use 5 on the eyebrows. Sometimes I'm sort of just feeling a little bit lazy and I draw up half of Kenalog 10 and half of saline. So a 2.5 to 5, I don't think we're risking a whole lot of difference in side effect. And sometimes I just feel like I'm doing everything I can. But it is a really rare day that I'm putting Kenalog 10 into someone's scalp. 
So traction alopecia, and this is something I think that's really important to be able to recognize and feel kind of confident in, in seeing it. And so traction alopecia has this fringe sign. So this one is somebody with a more Caucasian hair type and uh, traction alopecia does happen in this group. And I think because we don't expect it all the time, we miss seeing it. And so this is that longer hair that's right at the edge of the uh, hair line versus a decreased density, not complete alopecia, but you're just seeing the skin more easily through the hair, and then an uptick, sort of the more normal hair density here. So this is a young woman who'd been pulling her hair back just chronically into ponytails, and that was her one hairstyle that she always went to, and it was pretty tight. Um, this is a young woman, she's a, uh, an artist who is making her way um, you know, in the music industry and just always, of course, trying to look her best and um, was so frustrated because she started noticing her traction alopecia and took to social media to help other women recognize that this is not normal and it needs to be recognized and treated. And she's also demonstrating the fringe sign here. She has more complete areas of alopecia. If we put our dermatoscope down on this, we would see an absence of those hair follicles. This is scarring alopecia at this point. Um, she talked about her journey to actually having a hair transplant of hairs more uh, in the occiput into this area, and she was pretty successful in that. With patients with traction alopecia, I think we're often, it's so quick, like we can't even control the words that come out of our, our mouth, which is like, just don't pull your hair back so tight. That does not help people. They're so used to hairstyles. Like, I am so used to what I do with my hair. If you ask me to start pulling my hair over to this side, I'd be like, what? That's disgusting. Um, so people get very entrenched in how they take care of their hair. The appearance of our hair, especially in the skin of color uh, community, there are certain ways that we want to look to each other and hairstyles that are seen as more attractive versus less attractive. They give you more status or less status. And so it's very easy to say the words, well, just don't do that. But it's very hard to actually follow through. And I think we need to work on just helping people understand the rationale. I'm seeing on your scalp these signs that your hair is falling out because of the tightness of your hairstyle. I'm worried because I'm seeing scarring on your scalp and I think it's because of some of the tightness of your hairstyle. What do you think you are willing to change about your hairstyle? And especially in the skin of color community, what we can recommend is for braids. Braids ask your stylist to give you larger braids. That way that braid is not pulling on just a small number of hairs. That pressure, that traction is spread over a larger number of follicles and a larger area of hair. So loosen braids, larger braids, and limit them to two to three months. Very often in the skin of color community, braids are put in for a very long period of time before they're put out and they're put in so tight because they aren't being replaced in a week or a month. And so they have to be really tight so they look really nice for that long period of time. And try, if you're going to do one of these hairstyles, give yourself, if, if you're willing to, a break between those styles where you have a more natural hairstyle. So braid changes, it's not that you have to totally avoid them. And that's what I think I'm advocating you not go for, is like, oh, well, just don't braid it. You can braid it, just make these changes. Um, one side note, if you ever get a chance, watch the Chris Rock movie. It's uh, more of a documentary movie, um, but good hair. Good hair is such a great insight into what our patients with skin of color kind of are growing up with in their culture and their approach to hair care. Um, I learned a ton, uh, and he's really funny. Um, so extensions and weaves. So these are not as damaging as some of the more high tension, but a lot of times in order to have an extension or weave, there's still some amount of braiding that's happening underneath that the weave is sewn onto. So again, recommending the larger braids be used to uh, secure those hairs. And if we can, avoiding glues as a way to hold that uh, hair in place and taking breaks again between these higher tension hairstyles. Uh, Chemical uh, relaxers tend to be more damaging to the skin and the scalp in terms of uh, the tension and breakage. But again, as a caveat, CCCA, that central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia, is not caused by hair styling. It is an inflammatory immune process. Um, so hot comb alopecia is a complete misnomer. 
um, and taking breaks, whether that's uh, by wearing your hair out um, or covering it with a scarf or a wig. So a regional form of hair loss, pattern recognition here. This is frontal fibrosing alopecia. I showed you a picture at the very beginning. And what you're seeing is that singlet uh, ostia sign, the SOS sign that this is a scarring alopecia. You can see the difference here of her skin where she, this skin has been chronically exposed. This skin is whiter because it used to have hair in it. So this is a sign that something is wrong. And when you put your dermatoscope down, you see a complete absence of osteo. So this is smooth skin with no openings. You look here, you would still see those tiny vellus hair openings. This is a woman not with traction alopecia, but with frontal fibrosing alopecia. You can't see her eyebrows in this picture, I apologize. But if you could, another sign that this is not traction alopecia is by looking down at the woman's eyebrows and eyelashes. And very often, they will have an alopecia that is not due to overplucking. You can ask about that. And very often, they try and like take the blame on themselves. They're like, oh gosh, yeah, this is from when I pluck my eyebrows too much. You're like, well, when did you notice that your eyebrows were changing? Oh, you know, just in the last year or two. Well, that's not from overplucking. That's from the uh, frontal fibrosing alopecia. So in inspecting the woman's eyebrows, as well as looking for skin-colored papules uh, down here onto the forehead and temples. Again, that's inflammation around those vellus hairs uh, due to this inflammatory process, frontal fibrosing alopecia. And this is an immune response. And so we want to treat this with topical steroids. But topical steroids are usually not enough. So again, with uh, inflammation on the scalp, go big, go home, clobetasol, halobetasol, augmented betamethasone. Um, you can try doxycycline. I prefer it because uh, minocycline can make people blue, and that's not always dose-related. So you can sometimes be on minocycline for a short time and turn blue. So doxycycline, I just feel like I don't have to have an awkward conversation. Um, you can combine these things together. I give them, again, take a picture give it three to six months. If they're noticing anything that's you know, rapidly accelerating, we should ask them to come in sooner and uh, reassess with those images. A second line option is uh, nice, or if there's a contraindication to doxycycline, you could consider hydroxychloroquine as a nice uh, also first line option. So the dosing is 200 milligrams either twice a day or daily. Again, I'm trying to get this under control most of the time, so I typically start at the higher dose and back away if we get a really good clinical result. Finasteride has been studied, but some of the most recent research for frontal fibrosing alopecia was a pretty impressive uh, rate of stabilization. Again, setting our patients' expectations, we are not always going to be able to regrow hair, and typically we cannot. But if we can just keep the hairline where it is and not have it go further back, that is a pretty good win. So setting our expectations in theirs, stabilization is the name of the game, as well as control of itch or pain. And oral retinoids, isotretinoin and acetretin, were pretty good at that. Keeping in mind, this is usually a postmenopausal population. I'm a big fan of acetretin. I am not worried about this person getting pregnant anymore, and I don't want them to have to come in for a monthly pregnancy test. So I'm favoring the use of acetretin, uh, 20 to 25 milligrams. They use 20 milligrams in the study. The uh, pill comes as a 25, so it's pretty nice to do that. In order to get 20 milligrams, you'd have to prescribe two of the 10 milligram pills. And what you can see here is that compared to sort of the prior standard finasteride, they did not have as high a proportion of stabilization of that hairline. So the process was still active. And remembering that frontal fibrosing alopecia is a cousin of lichen planopilaris, which typically is happening more on the crown or the vertex of the scalp. A scarring hair loss, usually smaller patches that coalesce into big patches, um, sometimes incredibly itchy to patients. And so people come in sometimes not even knowing they have hair loss. So the chief complaint on the door is scalp itch. And you walk in, you're looking at the scalp, and you can see the complete dropout of hair on the scalp. So one of the things that I think we can also keep in mind uh, for camouflage is covering it up. So um, these are hair toppers or wiglets. Again, in the skin of color community, weaves are a really big part of hair care. I think for uh, Caucasian women, they just haven't heard about it as much. And so I think introducing this idea of if you have good preservation like this woman does of the side hair because she has androgenetic alopecia, she has frontal uh, loss and uh, 
um, decreased density on the top of her head, we can cover this up. So uh, while we're waiting for our treatments to work, you can get one of these usually from, uh, we have something called the Joseph Salon in our area. So if you look for just wiglets or things in your area, I do suggest going to a store and being able to try these on and talk to the experienced staff because you can order these on Amazon, but you never know what you're going to get. But camouflage is huge. And again, I don't always expect that patients are going to jump on this as an option. Sometimes they are really enthusiastic. They're so happy to know that they can just do something that they don't have to put in their body while we're waiting for medicines to work. I put some of the variety of brands at the bottom. Topic is one. These are essentially fibers that come in different colors, and patients can order the one that is closest to their hair color. It's sold at stores, so you can go to places like Sephora and Ulta and CVS, you know, and sometimes they have a return policy. So if a patient buys something and they don't like it or they pick the wrong color, they can return it. Um, but again, I think these pictures are really quite striking. And sometimes I think showing these to my patients can show them that, yeah, in the meantime, we can do something about this. And it's not uncommon that I have a patient come in and say, you know, it's nice to know that I can cover it up. I'm not really interested in taking medicine for this. I just, I just wanted to know what my options were. So there are a variety of patients looking for a variety of degrees of aggressiveness versus from, okay, it's not going to kill me. It's just related to my age. I'm going to use this when I have a nice event. I would say that's typically more older women. Um, but this is also a nice option for our, our younger patients who, again, are pursuing other things. Um, and the prices can vary. Um, okay, so we're going to jump into the evaluation, and then I'm looking forward to your take-home points and your questions. The overall performance of the speaker. How useful will this session be in your practice? Brian, we need some music, man. Come on. Pump us up. As a result of this program, you intend to change your patient care. What dose of spironolactone do you use? So my go-to for spironolactone, um, depending on how uh, my perception of that patient's comfort, if they seem slightly leery of, you know, talking about, you know, the potential for a slight decrease in blood pressure, or maybe it's going to make them pee more, I'll start them at 50 milligrams twice a day. And it, I tell them, you know, if you're feeling really good and you aren't noticing any side effects, then you can go ahead and just take those two pills at the same time. So I'm usually starting people at about 100 milligrams a day. A lot of times the side effects, breast tenderness, menstrual irregularities are dose related. So the higher we push that dose towards 150 and 200 milligrams a day, we just have to set our patients' expectations that they might, might start to experience those. And we can just decrease the dose to where we get a, a nice sort of even split between effect and uh, side effects. So I'm usually starting at 100 milligrams, taking that picture, and then reevaluating. Depending on the patient's kind of level of concern, you can absolutely start at 200 milligrams a day. Just know that those side effects are something that they're most likely going to experience. Um, apps and pearls for peds dosing. So I use Hippocrates. There's a version that I got from the app store that uh, is free. There are aspects of it that you have to pay for to unlock, but I can get pretty much every drug and get the adult and peds po uh, dosing for medications. Oh, wait a minute. Is this from Jim? That's gym session down the hallway, I think. Anyway, no, if it was from here, that's what I do. Um, I also have a pediatric dermatologist who I uh, very often will get her input on things, and she's fantastic. Um, but so far, Hippocrates has served me well. So scalp biopsies. Oh, fantastic, yes. So talking um, about post-biopsy education, pearls, uh, yes. So I like simple interrupted sutures. I actually tend to use a figure eight. So rather than throw one stitch and then have to tie a knot and my nurse is like, it's still bleeding, um, I, I, if this is the hole, 
I go in here and then out diagonally lower down. Then I go in straight across and I come out up top. So you've got the suture coming off here. You're tying your knot at the top. And essentially what happens is you have a loop you have a loop, you have a loop, you have a loop. So there are so many loops in all directions that it really clamps down and gives you really great hemostasis. So, um, and I only have to tie a knot once. Um, let's see. What do you do when a patient tells you their hair has been the same length for years? Um, well, that is true. That can happen. So every person's hair, their antigen cycle, which is the growth cycle, is sort of determined genetically. So those people in the Guinness Book of World Records who have hair like down to their butt and down to their floor, they are a genetic anomaly in a, I guess, positive way. Um, but everybody's length of their antigen growing cycle is gonna be slightly different. The difference is that there are some people, uh, usually kids, who just really can't grow hair. Um, and there's some genetic syndromes where their hair just can't grow uh, long and they usually have a, a structural defect in their hair. Um, but yeah, no, it's a true fact and we can't really change that. Uh, yes, cross stitch in the scalp. So I call it a figure out, uh, figure eight, maybe that's what you call a cross stitch. Um, comment on the capillus cap. Um, yes, so capillus is one of those low-level laser light therapies. Um, I would say just a price shop. Um, so look around, see what the best prices are. But again, there is a decent science at this point from randomized controlled trials and meta-analyses that these treatments can work. Um, studies for finasteride contributing to breast cancer even in men. So I think that for people who have a family history and certainly personal history of estrogen-related uh, cancers, this is not a treatment for those patients. So that's why having a tackle box is a really important thing, having ways to cover it up. But this is a pretty rare event. So again, there's always the power of anecdote of that one or two or pretty rare case. And I think it's fine to talk to patients you know, about this uncommon case. Remember, if you bring it up, it's going to be that trick of they're going to hear something bad and a risk. So if you're trying to talk people out of things, then yes, definitely tell them about really rare side effects. Um, but if you're trying to encourage people to consider the pros and cons of a treatment, then say, there is this risk. It seems pretty rare. Um, and they can make the best decision for them with your help. How would you treat alopecia areata in a young child? So our go-to for kids, especially young kids who aren't bothered by their hair loss, and I think that uh, Jim and our pediatric dermatologist, Andrea Zinglinger, are always so good at reminding me as more of an adult dermatologist and parents that very often kids are not bothered by what is happening to them, they will reach an age where they start to talk about whether they're self-conscious about something. But at the age of four, kids are not bothered. So having a very frank conversation about why we're treating hair loss and who's bothered by it is an important part of that visit. But using topical steroids would still be a first-line approach if uh, treatment is uh, you know, chosen by both you and the, um, the parents. Protocol for squaric acid. Um, so squaric acid, we're lucky enough to be able to stock in our clinic. Um, I think that Sheila McGinnis, who is here on Wednesday, prescribes it to the patient, but we're able to keep different concentrations in our clinic. Um, for our patients, we sensitize them to 2%, so we kind of need to trigger that allergic reaction. But then we put on different concentrations on their arm, and we use the one that is just below where they reacted. So we put on 0.001%. 0.01%, 0.1%, 1%, and we see where the redness starts and we go to the concentration right below that. So we're trying to trigger just a slight level of in, uh, inflammation or immune response that's not bothersome to the patient. And a little bit of immune response is enough to sort of disrupt that one immune response that's causing the alopecia by causing this more allergic immune response. So different types of T cells are now warring at each other. And the squaric acid response seemed to, seems to overwhelm the more CD8 immune response that's contributing to the alopecia areata. Um, they do apply it at home once they figure out what concentration to use. Hair loss, do we do topical steroid pulse therapy 
for long-term maintenance. So for a lot of my patients with uh, LPP, I have them use the topical medication daily until their itch, their pain is under control. I have them use it until they come back to see me. That might be in eight weeks, it might be in three months. I am not worried about them using a topical steroid, even an ultra potent topical steroid for that period of time. I am more worried that they're gonna be afraid of the steroid, not use it and have the process continue to cause scarring. Um, even after that eight week or three month visit, what I'm talking about with them is you look better. So let's say that they're better. I'm going to say, why don't you stop the steroid because everything looks like it's doing great. If at the slightest feeling of itch, I want you to put this on. And even if they have a little seborrhea, you know what? Clobetasol is going to treat that. On the days that they need it, they're going to use it. And my goal is just to educate them since this is a long-term condition to be able to control it when those symptoms kick up. But itch is usually a very early indicator that the disease is active. Uh, using methotrexate for alopecia areata. So we are not aggressive in our approach to alopecia areata for um, most kids. Uh, we think that the risk of things like cyclosporin, which has been advocated, mycophilate, mofetil, methotrexate, you name the immunosuppressant, it's been used for alopecia areata. Um, but the conversation we typically have at this point is the side effects of a lot of these medications seem to outweigh the benefit because these are five or six or eight year olds who would be on this medication forever. While tofacitinib is also an immune suppressant, um, again, there are aspects of it where it seems immune protective for some cancers and uh, seems to be a lot more effective than some of those older medications. So always weighing the risks and benefits, especially in a young population and a chronic condition that is not life-threatening while it is life-impacting and just working with the kids and parents to figure out that balance. Thanks for a great question. Questions, have a great evening, thank you.